Good morning. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter now of the book of Galatians. We continue our study through this book. We'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 4 together this morning. And as we come into chapter 4, Paul is going to be giving us now a, something of a new image or a new analogy. Uh, and he, he slides into this in sort of a clever way in the first couple of verses. Before we stand and read, just look with me at the first two verses of this chapter. And if you were here last week, you'll, you'll, you'll notice something of a repetition or a recap here. He says in the first two verses of what we're going to study this morning, this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Do you hear there the, the recap of how he ended chapter 3? The point he's making here is, in this way that the child is under guardians and thus does not have a possession of the inheritance, in that way he's no different than one of the household slaves in that home, though he is the owner of everything. As long as he does not yet have possession of the inheritance, in that way he's the same as a slave. So he's recapping there the point from last week that he made, but he's doing so while inserting this word slave. And that slave concept now is going to become the new driving illustration. Some of you may be very happy to hear that we're finished now with the repeated use of the key words that we've seen for a number of weeks. Uh, law, promise, faith. We have been hitting those terms because Paul keeps bringing them up over and over again. Uh, we're finished with those words as the repetitious theme. Not that we're done hearing of those realities. But as of this morning, and really proceeding all the way through the end of chapter 5, this is the start of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 4, all the way through chapter 5, Paul directs us to focus on the realities of slavery and freedom. Slavery and freedom. As we'll see this morning, slavery of a very particular kind. And he's going to be drawing us back now in our, in our minds to a truth that he first introduced in Galatians 1.4. You remember back in January when we heard of our Lord that he has rescued us from this present evil age. You need to remember that phrase, and uh, we'll talk a lot this morning about what is encompassed in that, because that is uh, the reality he's going to now present to us in terms of slavery and freedom. Coming to bring freedom. This is a very good description of what Christ has come to do. I wonder if you remember when he went uh, to the temple and read from Isaiah 61 and then claimed it for himself, saying, this verse has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Do you remember those amazing words that he uttered? The passage that he read about himself had to do with these things, that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. These are not just true statements about the work of Christ. It's a very good account of the purpose for which he has come. And what I hope we'll see this morning as we look at these first 11 verses of Galatians 4 is that that freedom from oppression that he is promising, that he has come to accomplish for his people, 
that freedom is not something different from what we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, when it told us that Christ has rescued us from this present evil age. We saw back then that Paul is tapping into a way of speaking about all of human history and dividing it up into two pieces. There is a present evil age, and there is the age that is to come, the age to come. When Christ died on the cross, a death sentence was pronounced against that present evil age. It is not fully dead. It is dying. It is passing away. The death sentence was pronounced on the day when Christ died on the cross. And as far as the age to come, well, the inauguration of that age to come came shortly thereafter. Really, at Pentecost, with the giving of the Spirit, we have the inauguration of the age to come. What we're going to hear Paul tell us this morning is that the present evil age is an age of bondage. It is the age of the old world. And sinners are held in bondage by this old world. Christ, by liberating his people, this liberation involves him bringing them into the new age, the age of the Spirit. And one of the things we'll see this morning is that that was something that needed doing for Jews and Gentiles alike. He is going to point out this morning that the Gentiles were in bondage to what is called the elementary principles of the world before Christ came. And he's also going to point out that so too were the Jews. That bondage took on two different forms, but they were both equally a kind of slavery. That's what we'll look at very carefully together this morning. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? I'll read it from the English Standard Version. Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Do you know what is one of the hardest things about the book of Galatians? At least I feel that way as I'm, as I'm dealing with this text before us this morning. And maybe this says something more about me than it does Galatians. I don't know. Uh, 
One of the hardest things about the book of Galatians is the word we. Paul, well, let me give you this example, and I did get permission from my wife to give you this example. We have something that's become a bit of a joke in, uh, uh, between us because of how often certain things happens in our conversations with each other. We'll be talking, and she'll be telling me a story about something that has taken place. Uh, for example, something that's taken place with two ladies. This was going on, these two women, and then, and here's what she'll say then. And then she said, and I have to stop and throw the flag. And I say, whoa, 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 they're both ladies. She doesn't help me. I do, they're both she. I, I don't know which one you're talking about. But are we the only ones that have a conversation like that? I hope that we're not. It'll encourage, it'll encourage my wife. Paul is a member of the two important groups in the conversation that he is writing about. When he's talking about the Jews with their history, uh, their relationship to God before Christ by means of the law, when he's talking about the Jews, what word does he have to use? He uses the word we. He's a Jew. When he talks about the Christian community, made up of Jew-Gentile alike, the distinctions do not matter, he has to use the word, we. He's a Christian. And at points, he has, he's comparing them to each other. And so we really have to wrestle at points with, who exactly is it that he's talking about here uh, when he uses the word we? And we saw last week, one piece of our uh, text was Galatians 3, 23 to 25. There, he was very clearly saying we regarding Jewish believers. He needed to talk about them particularly because he was talking about the law. In our text this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that every time that he says we, he's talking about the general Christian experience. Right? We'll see that, I think, as we go. He will say some things about Jews uniquely, but he won't say we when he does that. God's message from our text this morning is a message about every believer, whether Jew or Gentile. And if you want to boil down the message, it's this. All are in bondage apart from Christ. All are in bondage apart from Christ. But that bondage has not come in the same form. It doesn't always take on the same appearance, but it is bondage nonetheless. Let's begin with verses 1 to 3. Paul's going to set all of this up for us in these verses. Let me reread the first three verses here. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now to start, notice that he just mentioned heirs at the end of the verse right before this one. Uh, verse 29 of the last chapter, he mentioned heirs as well, didn't he? If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then he says, I mean that an heir is no different than a slave. Verse 2, because he is under guardians until a particular date set by his father. Now it's important to understand that He's making a very limited comparison here. He's, he's not equating 
the child and the heir and the slave in every way that they could be compared. For example, he's not saying that the childhood of the heir here involves slave labor or slave beatings. Or he's, not, he's not comparing them in every way that could be compared. He makes very explicit the way that he is intending to make this comparison. His point is, one, it's that that heir as a child receives exactly as much of the inheritance as the household slave receives. What's that number? Zero. That's how much of the inheritance that child receives while he's a child. Though he's the owner of everything, he has access to, he receives zero of the inheritance, just like the slave does. That's very important because he's, he's bringing up this analogy of the slave to explain something about us, right? Notice verse 3. It's in that way that he says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. If we do not understand the analogy he's making, in other words, in the first three verses, we're going to completely miss his point in, in the rest of, uh, of our text. Now, I see Paul here in verses 1 to 3 as still speaking in general terms about the whole Christian community. He's not talking about specifically Jew or Gentile. You remember he made that shift at the end of chapter 3 to the entire community who are heirs according to promise. And what you need to realize then is that verse 3 takes the entire Christian community, Jews and Gentiles, and it says something about all of them. They were all enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Jews were enslaved. We read about their redemption from slavery in verses 4 and 5. He even uses the word redemption in verse 5 in reference to this. You redeem a slave. Gentiles were enslaved. We read about their redemption in verses 8 and 9. But before we go into those declarations, we have to take a moment to understand the thing that they are enslaved under. It's this phrase in verse 3. You see it there. The elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world. This is the word elemental, elemental principles, excuse me. This is the word stoicheia has a wide use of meaning, or it can. It's a word that was very common to find in Paul's world. So it can refer to demonic powers that exercise rule over unbelievers, for example. Much more commonly, though, it refers, and especially when it comes with this phrase, of the world, the stoicheia of the world, when it comes in, a, in an expression like that, it's very commonly referring to the physical elements that make up the world. Earth, air, fire, water. This is a, this is a very common understanding um, in his day that it would have been used. And because of that meaning, it's also used then generally to speak about fundamental principles of a thing or fundamental elements of a thing. Greg Beale has written much about Paul's use of this word. Uh, he's very helpful. Listen to one thing that he says here. He's speaking of Paul's use of this expression. He says, it is a phrase outside the Bible in current Hellenistic and scientific literature of the day. It just refers to the four elements of the earth. It's referring to the earth. So when Paul uses it, he's referring to the old earth and that Christ is emerging as a new creation. 
He's saying, don't follow the elements of the old world. Now listen to this. So it's important to see that phrase as a contrast to the new creation. And one of the reasons I think he's exactly right in understanding Paul to be using it in this way is because of the realities he opened the letter with. As he spoke in terms of a transfer from one age to another age. When you hear the words new creation, like Beale just references there about this word, what should ring in your ears at this point is age to come. Rescue from the present evil age, new birth, age to come. Jesus is the first fruit of the new creation. And he brings his people out of bondage to the old earth, the old age, the present age, and into the new earth, the age to come. Now here's the key. When did bondage to the old get broken? According to Paul here. You see the answer? He tells us, the first few words of verse 4, he tells us this. Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When is this bondage broken? One thing brings rescue from the present evil age, and that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what brings this rescue. Now, coming into verses 4 and 5, which we'll look at as a piece here together, one thing is for certain, in verses 4 and 5, Paul does narrow his statements now to apply to Jewish believers. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And stop there. The reason that this is clearly a reference to the past of believing Jews is that phrase that we see twice here, under the law. Under the law speaks to one's status as being under the authority of the Mosaic Covenant. And there is an excellent presentation in one book of a series edited by D.A. Carson, called Paul and the Law. He searches out all the uses of this phrase, under the law, in the New Testament, and examines how they're used and, and what we're supposed to take from this. It's an expression that, that comes up 11 times in the New Testament, all between Galatians, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Right? 11 times, under the law. Six of them are used to indicate that Jews are under the law, Three of them are used to affirm that believers are not under the law. And then you've got two left. And they're very interesting uh, for our purposes this morning. So I want to show you these two. One of them you can see on your page there. Look just down a bit at verse 21 in this chapter. Paul asks a question. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That's the tenth of the eleven uses. Here's a question that Paul puts to these Galatians. These are Gentile Galatians who have begun by faith. We've seen that. And they're being tempted by the allure of the Mosaic law. And Paul calls them, you who desire to be under the law. Well, what does that say about them? Well, they're not under the law now. So this at least fits with the 
three times where it's used to affirm that Christians, that believers, are not under the law. Uh, the last use of this phrase, under the law, we find in 1 Corinthians. And you need to see this one as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Find verse 20. I'll read verses 20 and 21. You need to be here because we'll spend a couple of minutes with what he says here. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Stop there. You ever see the videos of, of guys solving a Rubik's Cube in like eight seconds? That's what Paul just did right here. This has got to be one of the most brilliant statements this is a top three in Paul's highlights reel right here. Notice the categories that he sets beside one another as he walks through this. Verse 20, there are those who are under the law, which most take, and I agree, especially given what we're seeing about this phrase, most take this to be in parallel with what was said right before it. So he's, he's paralleling here with, I became as a Jew. So he's speaking about Jews. There are those who are under the law. For them, he becomes like them, he says. He takes on their behaviors so that he might win them to Christ. But notice, does Paul consider himself to be under the law? The answer is emphatically no. He says, though not being myself under the law. Right? But here's a category. There are those who are under the law. There's one. Then, verse 21, there are those who are outside the law. Now, who's that? Well, this is unbelieving Gentiles. They're living as if there is no law at all. They're certainly not living under the Mosaic law. And notice what Paul says here of them. He says, he becomes like them. Now, he can't mean that he begins living in sinful rebellion against God. That's not what he means by becoming like those who are outside the law. He means living the lifestyle of a Gentile with them when he is with them. Does he talk about that elsewhere, the freedom and comfort to do that? He had to confront Peter in our letter to the Galatians uh, because of his refusal to do just that. So he becomes like them when he is with them in order to win them. But he goes out of his way to clarify there. You see, that does not mean that he thinks himself to exist somehow outside of the law of God. So he's not under the law, but he's not outside the law of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means this third category. He is under the law of Christ. We'll be talking about that phrase quite a bit when we get to Galatians chapter 6. But notice then, Paul is decidedly not under the law, although he is under the law of Christ. And I should mention there that he doesn't actually use the word under when he speaks about the law of Christ. He says, in the law of Christ. I think that helps us because under the law, is a, as we've said, is a, uh, an expression with a meaning already. So he even avoids the use of the preposition under. 
So he is someone who is not under the law, and yet he is in the law of Christ. There is something of a distinction between the two. Now, enough of that. Here, come back to Galatians 4, 4 and 5. The point in all of this is that this statement in verses 4 and 5 is a statement about the Jews. Jews are those who are under the law. Christ undid their slavery. He redeemed them who were under the law by being born himself under the law. This is continuing with lines of thought he's already given us in Galatians. We saw at the end of chapter 2, the only way that those under the Mosaic law could be free to join another is if their representative head were himself under the law and then died. His death freed them to be joined to another, namely to Christ and the new covenant. And remember, that is explicitly his point in Romans chapter 7 as well. He says it uh, verbatim. Because of that work of Christ, received by faith, their slavery is brought to an end, and they now receive the status of an heir by virtue of adoption. Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now let's pause here and remember again, we have to keep in mind what he has said is the nature of this enslavement. We cannot just import whatever baggage we have in our minds when the word enslavement gets used. Let me reread again what he has said so far about the nature of this slavery he's describing. He has told us, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So let's put it in those terms then. We all had realities in place that kept the full inheritance from coming to God's children until the fullness of time came. From the Jewish side, it was the law covenant itself, which they were under. Remember that the inheritance that was promised to Abraham was a global inheritance. In you shall all the families of the world be blessed. Remember that? As long as a covenant is in place that separates the Gentile world from God's people, a covenant that excludes the Gentiles, which the Mosaic Covenant very much did, the inheritance is not being experienced then, is it? There is something in place that is preventing the global inheritance from coming. And so he says in verse 5 that that redemption of Jewish heirs out from under the law facilitated the complete receipt of inheritance by God's children. He says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you'll allow me, I want to pass over verses 6 and 7 for a moment and come back to them. I, I wrestled with this. I think this will be the clearest way to get Paul's message here. Uh, he continues with his argument coming into verse 8, and there is a bombshell that he is about to deliver about these elementary principles that we're talking about. And it comes in verse 9. Let me read verses 8 and 9 again. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? 
whose slaves you want to be once more. Now, what has changed here in terms of who he's talking about? Can you tell that he is addressing Gentiles with these words? I mean, he's addressing the Galatians. Uh, That's the history of these churches in Galatia. These are Gentile lands. He's beginning now to say things that are specific to the Gentile experience, however. And we shouldn't miss, I'll just, uh, this deserves more than an aside, but we must not pass over how beautifully he speaks of their conversion in verse 9. You see that there? You know what I'm referring to. He says that they have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. That is profound. One man wrote this about that expression. This is very helpful because it explains the Bible's use of this this term, know. He said this, even though it is true that believers have come to know God, there's a deeper reality that explains why they know God's saving love. Namely, God's knowledge of them. God's knowledge of his people harkens back to the Old Testament verb yada, to know, where God's knowledge refers to his choosing of someone, the setting of his affection upon someone. Hence, he knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of the Jewish people, Genesis 18. He knew Israel and chose them out of all the people groups of the earth, Amos 3.2. He knew Jeremiah before he was born, Jeremiah 1.5. So too the Galatians have come to know God because God knew them first. Because he loved them and graciously chose them to be his own. It's a beautiful thing for him to say. That's not unique to the Gentiles. That's unique to all of God's people. We love because he first loved us. But as he's he's directing his words now to them as Gentiles, he says of them, you too, before you knew God, were enslaved. The realities of the old world that kept you from experiencing God's inheritance was the very pagan lives you had always lived. You had lived worshiping false gods. Now here's the bombshell. Verse 9. Now that you are in Christ... Now that you love and worship the one true God, now that you are redeemed from the elementary principles of the world, he asks them a question. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles whose slaves you want to be once more? Why did Paul write this letter? What was going on in Galatia that he heard about that necessitated sitting down and writing this out? What are they being tempted to do? Are the Galatians being tempted to start worshiping pagan idols again? Is that the problem that we've seen? It's not at all, is it? They're being tempted to incorporate Jewish law practices into their relationship with God. Things like circumcision and food laws and the Jewish calendar, as we'll see. (laughs) And here comes verse 9. What does Paul declare those Jewish law practices? You know, the ones that God commanded of his people in the Old Testament. What does he call those Jewish law practices now that Christ has come? He calls them the weak and worthless stoicheia of this world. And get this, he equates them to the idol worship that they had left in coming to Christ. He says there are things 
whose slaves you want to be once more. Go backward to trying to relate to God through this Mosaic covenant, and you may as well go backward to worshiping idols. It'd be the same slavery, because it would be the same return to the things of the old world. Can you imagine the Judaizers falling out of their chairs as this is read out loud? Do you think news of this equation might get around after this? Might get back to Jerusalem? You think Acts 21-28 might have Jews crying out, Men of Israel, this is the man who preaches everywhere against our people and the law and the temple. If you think those things, you'd be right. That's exactly what happens. It's going to explain why he has to write things. Like Romans 7-7 7, 7 and following, he has to reply to the objection that he's calling the law sin. And he makes clear there the law isn't sin. It has all kinds of good and blessed effects. He's not condemning the law. He's declaring that the law has achieved what it was always intended to achieve. It has been fulfilled. And thus, that particular form of covenantal relationship has come to an end. This is the celebration that we see in the verses that we skipped over, verses 6 and 7. Look back up there. And because this has now happened, because the graduation has taken place, now that the fullness of time has come, he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now that Christ has come, we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. The inheritance is ours. We are no longer a slave. We are a son. And thus, we are heirs through God. He'll say it in Romans 8, 17 like this. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The time of pedagoguery. Remember that word from last week? Pedagogue. The time of pedagoguery is finished. The sons have received the inheritance, and these Galatians are wanting to return to the pedagoguery. Now, he gives a piece of evidence that they're doing this. It's in the fact that he has heard they are starting to adopt the Jewish calendar. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. He piles on words here in this a uh, very emotive expression of disapproval as to what they're doing. They are changing their own approach to the calendar uh, to mirror what they have been told. Now, I'll tell you, I don't think that Paul actually cares one way or the other about the decision to mark a particular holiday. This is not about that. This is not about particular cultural expressions as holidays. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, it's clear... Here's one, Acts 21, 21, we hear that Paul is being accused of telling the Jews not to circumcise their children. And in the context there, it's clear this is a false accusation. He's not going around telling the Jews not to circumcise their children. He's going to say in Galatians 5, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. I don't care if you circumcise your children or not. The relevance has come to an end. He'll say in Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. He doesn't care. It is in the category of the Romans 14, conscience issues, where there is neither explicit command or prohibition. It's what we call adiaphora, an indifferent matter. He doesn't really care about somebody observing a particular holiday. But notice how this Galatian situation is very different from those things. This is not Jews who've come to Christ and have decided to keep marking the holidays that their people have always marked. These are Gentiles deciding they need to change their lifestyle to mirror the Jewish lifestyle, to keep their calendar that was instituted after the Exodus. It's not about the holidays. It's about the evidence this serves that they're indeed trying to take an old covenant approach to their relationship with God. And about that, Paul most definitely does care. Verse 11, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Look down at chapter 5, verse 2, just quickly. And you'll notice how he skips around in some of these things to different examples. They're all united in the fact that they are all regulation, they're all old covenant regulations. That's the whole that's the point he's making. So he can talk there about the Jewish calendar, he'll talk elsewhere about circumcision. Here's what he says in chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But if you accept circumcision, if you follow that path as some sort of a religious observance, why would you do that? You do that because the Old Covenant commands you to do that, to be in fellowship with God's people. Right? If you're doing that, then keep the whole law. Because Christ is of no advantage to you. It's the law or it is Christ, Galatians. This is the point that he'll spend the entire letter He's been doing it for months now for us, hasn't he? Trying to get the Galatians to see it's a choice. It is standing before God on the basis of works that you have done, or it is standing before God with empty hands on the basis of works that have been done for you, credited to your account and received, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, by faith alone. Now, I want to remind us, as we're starting to draw this to a close this morning, why Paul is using the word law in the first place as a synecdoche, as a shorthand for the Mosaic Covenant. We've, We've talked about this before. In each case where he's doing that in this letter, he's naming the covenant by the most prevalent feature of it. The Mosaic Covenant was characterized by law keeping. You want to draw near to God? You cannot touch dead animals. You cannot do that. You must do this. Right? You want your son to belong in the community and have access to the temple? He must be circumcised. You want to stay within 
this typological rest that I have given you in the land? You must keep the commandments of God. If you don't, I'm going to send a covenant lawsuit against you and with my prophets that you have broken the commandments. And if you don't come back to the commandments, I'm going to boot you from the land. They gained access to God in that typ- typological fashion through their obedience, their works of obedience. I am not talking there about salvation at all. Let's be clear. I'm talking about access to the ceremonies, fixtures, types, shadows that God ordained and that revealed God. They gained access to that through their obedience. Let me ask you this morning, is that how you received Christ? Is that how you are qualified to stand in the presence of the throne of God? Have you drawn near to God's throne room clothed in works of your righteousness? If you try that, it not only shows that you don't understand your need for the grace of God, it shows that you've never understood the law either. Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. A life lived according to the Spirit, that's the life of the age to come, the age of the Spirit. We'll be seeing that in spades here in the weeks to come in Galatians. Christ has fulfilled God's righteous requirement for us, since none of us could do it for ourselves. And what that means for us this morning, even if I had no knowledge of the lives, the past, the situations, the circumstances of anybody in this room, I could say with certainty that there is not a single person sitting here before me this morning who is without hope. Because as long as you draw breath, Christ is held out to you, saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Certainly there are, uh, well, say this, if there are any here this morning Uh, who hear this and have not bet their entire lives on the perfect, completed work of Christ in their stead. They need to hear that command of his and obey it. They need to obey it now because tomorrow is not promised. But today is given as the day of salvation. But doubtless there are Christians here this morning, believers who have allowed themselves to slip into patterns of living, of thinking. Patterns that display uh, forgetfulness, an underappreciation for God's mercies. Has your suffering, and this would apply regardless of the source of the sufferings, maybe it's Maybe the suffering has come as a result of sinful choices in the past. Maybe it's come as a result of circumstances you had no control over. Has your suffering become the lens through which you view the whole world so that you can no longer recognize the blessings that God brings in your life? Has suffering tempted you to withdraw from pursuing Christ with his people out of resentment, out of 
bitterness, out of numbness, perhaps. Those dealing with temptations like that, they need to remember that if God has dealt perfectly and finally with their sin at the cross, if he has gifted his spirit to them as a down payment on their inheritance, then everything he is bringing into their life is a purposeful and effective tool in his hand to finish what he has started. And I would invite you this morning to remember that. You don't have to understand exactly how that plays out in this particular instance in your life. God never promises to give us that understanding. But you can trust him, even where you cannot see. And the evidence for his trustworthiness is the empty tomb. And the evidence is Romans chapter 8, which you would do well to go back and read today. And the evidence is in the promise of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are a people who rely always in every way upon your promises. We thank you for the promise that you have given to your people since the beginning. That the need that we have that we cannot meet, you will meet. You will send one who at great personal cost will sacrifice, lay down his life for the lives of his people. We thank you for that promise and that we now have the great honor and privilege to look backward at the fulfillment of that promise. How many generations of your people looked forward, not knowing how it would come to pass? Lord, we know his name. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We thank you for the promises that are in him always, yes and amen. Lord, we pray that you would help us this day, this week, that we would be a people who are content with what we have received in Christ. If we have nothing and we have Christ, we have everything, we are rich. Lord, grant us the eternal perspective that we must have if we're to honor you with our thought life, with our actions. We confess this morning our complete reliance on you and our repeated failure in those ways. Thank you, Father, for the grace that is ours in the new covenant, that is ours through the shed blood of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen.